I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where uh, maybe you're in a different place you've never been before or, you know, and, and you introduce yourself and someone hears something about you and they say, oh, as if they know what that means. Uh, just to give you a little bit of context here, this morning I was looking through uh, the interwebs at some point this week and there was this thing came up that showed uh, a jar of mayonnaise being sold in England. And this jar of mayonnaise was larger than the average jar of mayonnaise. And do you know what it was labeled? American size. <laughs> I know. If only it weren't so accurate, I could be more offended. That's right. The big mayo is the American-sized mayo, which does sort of make me laugh because you know I, I, I've read several things over the last year about what other countries think about America, and some of the answers are pretty right on, and some of them are basically stereotypes of who we are, right? Uh, throughout our adult life, Nisha and I have always uh, worked for churches, and uh, so therefore, consequently, almost all of our friends were from church. And uh, that was the case until our, our boys started going to elementary school, which, you know, gets you out and around different people that you wouldn't normally been around. And so uh, while the boys were in elementary school and we got to know people there in Antioch, they were also all Christians, which meant that for most of our adult life together, we were surrounded by people that love God, which is great. <laughs> it's great. However, I sort of wondered what it would be like to have friends that weren't Christians. I'm being somewhat silly here. I hope you understand <laughs> that. So when we moved here, we actually had friends that didn't go to church, some who had never been to church before in their lives. And what was really interesting for me was when I would hang out with these friends and I would meet some of their other friends, my friend would always kind of look at me as to how I wanted him to introduce me. This is my friend Bryce. And then he could say a lot of things after that. But one of the things that, you know, we were sort of cautious about was telling people right away whether or not I was a pastor at a church. And the reason being is that when people find out, not just that I'm a Christian, but that I'm a professional Christian, <laughs> it makes them uncomfortable. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations where, you know, I'll, I'll meet someone, I'll hang out with them, and, you know, we'll be having dinner or whatever, and then it will come up, so what do you do? And I say, I'm, I, I'm a pastor, I work at a church. And almost every time that has happened, the response has been, really? <laughs> now, how am I supposed to take that? Why are they saying really? Is it because, uh, you know, I, you know I, I'm not acting like someone who's a Christian? I, I, I prefer to think that I don't fit their stereotypical view of particularly what a pastor looks like or acts like or whatever. Um, but it did get me thinking after some of these occasions, like, is there something I need to make more obvious to them? You know, is, is there something that I maybe need to show that, that, that says that I am what I am? But on the other hand, I also recognize, like I've already stated, that if they find out what I do too quickly, 
they won't want to talk to me. When I, was, uh, when, I, when I graduated from college and moved out to Virginia, I didn't really have any friends. I didn't know anyone there, knowing my age. And so I got a job at a store in the mall. Just a part-time job that I worked, you know, maybe 10 hours a week. And I, I was working with a bunch of other college students at that time. And I remember vividly one day I was uh, on my side. I was folding clothes, working in the area I was supposed to be working in. And someone that I didn't know uh, came up to me. And, you know, they're working. And they're like, so, you know, where'd you go to college? I told them all that stuff. What do you do now? I said, well, I'm a youth pastor. And they immediately moved to the other side of the store. Not just like over one display, but to the other side of the store. And I found myself wondering, what do you think I'm going to do? <laughs> like, all of a sudden they feel something wet on the back of their head. It's like, <laughs> welcome to the family of Jesus, right? Like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it was that they expected, but there is something in their heads that if they find out who I am or what I do, that there's something negative about that. Now, why do I bring all this up? Uh, we have been looking at the Christian community in Corinth, and they were a community that struggled to live a Christian life that was different than the life they lived before they knew Jesus, when they were simply Corinthians. And there were several big issues that had sprung up in their church that, that showed how, how deep this misunderstanding or lack of knowledge was. And those big issues were signs of the way that they had gotten away from the basics of the gospel that they had been taught by Paul. So Paul is writing them this letter uh, after a bit of time to, to tell them about things that were going on. And the, and the first problem we looked at was that they have a problem with pride. Their pride was driving several wedges in the community, and it was affecting the way that they treated one another in both small ways and in really big, dramatic ways. Um, and, and it boiled down to this. Several of them wanted to be considered more important than others in the church, which, as we talked about that week, is a very natural human thing to do. Even though we don't want to admit that we want that, we all kind of want to be the big dog in the room. We want to be recognized. We want to be important. But what happened in this case was that they started forming camps based on who had baptized them, asserting that their person gave them some sort of greater spirituality and influence over the others. Some were claiming that they had special knowledge, knowledge that wasn't available to everyone else. And it's too bad you don't have the knowledge that I have. Maybe one day you can, but for now, you don't. It's hard to be a unified body of Christ when everyone is clamoring to be more highly regarded than the rest. Let me give you another example. One of the first churches that I interned at, my brother-in-law was the preacher there. And he had come in and, and, and they had revitalized the church. And I was brought in during the summers when I was at Pepperdine to work uh, with the teens of the community and these young families started coming and there were older families and there were younger families but what happened was there were some older members who had been influential for a long time who were no longer as influential as they thought they should be and they looked at the younger people in the church and they thought to themselves these people are taking over our church and so this sort of bubbled under, 
you know, underneath everything for a while, and, and this tension, it started to grow and grow and grow, until finally one Sunday, the, the ringleader of this older uh, group of folks, and, and I'm not labeling older people versus younger people, understand that this is just how it played out in this one place, gets up and says, you know, he mentions my brother-in-law, and he says, these families are trying to take the church building for us, from us, so that they can sell it and gain all the profits off the property. Th this really happened, <laughs> by the way. This really happened. And they held a church vote at that very night to decide whether or not to fire my brother-in-law. And instead of it getting down to all of that, my brother-in-law decided, you know what? Like, <laughs> and what ended up happening was the church did what? It split. And one small group stayed at the building and another part of the group went off and met in a black Angus <laughs> every Sunday for a period of time. It is hard to be a unified body of Christ when people are clamoring, clamoring to be more highly regarded than the next. Because the thing is, when we want to be more highly regarded than the other person, it's not just about raising ourselves up, is it? It's about making sure everyone knows they are what? Below us. Their pride led to another major foundational problem, and that is, besides just, just this issue of, of pride, they, they, were, they were struggling to live by a different standard. Uh, as Christians, when we decide we're going to follow Christ and we're baptized into him, we are committing ourselves to live like Jesus. You know who Jesus is, right? Right? The Son of God, who was also the son of a carpenter, who spent most of his adult life homeless. He lived sacrificially when he was here. And, and even that giving of himself, the giving of his life, was the reason why he was here in the first place. It is hard to look at Jesus and separate sacrificial living from the way he lived, if it's not impossible. And this is who the Corinthian people had dedicated themselves to follow and who they said they were going to live like. And yet, they still lived in Corinth. And they still wanted to live as Corinthians. They wanted to be successful and influential and powerful in all of the ways that Corinth offered them the opportunity to be. Those who were rich wanted to stay rich. Those who were powerful wanted to stay powerful. Those who were not rich wanted to become rich. They wanted to be out from under the control of those who stood above them. But the problem was they couldn't have it both ways. They could not be both followers of Jesus and live like Corinthians because Jesus was not leading them to be Corinthians. He was leading them, in fact, in the opposite direction. And think about it this way. If following Jesus means we're going this direction and being a Corinthian means you're going this direction, you cannot follow Jesus if you're doing one of two things, if you are trying to keep one foot firmly rooted in Corinth, you can't really follow, can you? Or if you decide to go this direction even more, what are you doing? You're moving further away 
from the path that Jesus is leading you down. It's troubling to note that what we see over and over again in the book of Corinth is that the way that you most frequently see them turning from the way of Jesus manifests itself in the way they treat each other. It's not so much in what they're doing to people outside the church. Paul isn't really concerned with that at all other than how they're making Christianity look to those around them. But almost all of the problems in Corinth revolve around how they treat one another, which is a little bit depressing. If Corinth is a pretty accurate representative of who we are as people, though maybe the manifestations were more extraordinary, it is hard to see them again and again treat one another in ways that Jesus would not have them do. Which makes me remember how easy it is, it is for us to forget that the greatest change Jesus makes in our behavior is in the way we treat other people. It's not about you stopping smoking or cursing or playing pool or any of those sorts of things, right? The main way, the main difference in you is how you treat other people. That is the sign that you are following Jesus. And the world that we live in does not hold that same ethic, that same value. Their ethic and their value expects us to look out for ourselves and to take care of others when it is convenient for us to do so. Because that is what we do. If you walk by someone who's asking for money and you happen to have a dollar, and you're not in too much of a hurry, then maybe you give them that dollar. But are you going there to actually help that person? No, they're on the way, right? And as long as you have time, you'll help them. This is the ethic of where we live and who we are. We take care of ourselves, we build our kingdoms, we take care of others, when it is convenient. And Jesus says that we are to love everyone, even our enemies, and to give them more than they would even ask or demand for if they were to unjustly do so. Give me your coat. Here's my coat, but do you want my sweater as well? This is what Jesus is telling us to do. And and the Jesus ethic regarding how we treat others is radically different, okay, than any other ethic you can follow. It doesn't matter what it is. The Jesus ethic is going to be radically different from that ethic. It is going to look different, smell different, sound different, all of it. And the way that people treat and love others is, as we see in Corinth, it's the primary way you know if they are following Jesus or not. Think about, for a second, some of the, the, the classic gods of literature. Think about Roman or Greek gods. Think about, if you know those stories, think about how they acted. You know what they did? They took, and they took, and they took. And they built themselves up. 
And sometimes maybe they were generous to those who worshipped them. Most of the time, they used those people to get whatever it was they wanted in their endless pursuit of making themselves bigger and greater. There is no one like Jesus. And there is no way to live or ethic to have in your life that compares to what Jesus is calling you to. And if you live anything like him, people are going to tell the difference between you and someone else. Not because of how maybe you're judgmental toward them is the rap we get or how hypocritical you are. But think about it. If there was an image of Christians that spread around the world, that Christians are not simply, in some cases, judgmental or hypocritical, that no, there's another group of people that love others in a weird, sacrificial, reckless way. Wouldn't that be something? That this is what the followers of Jesus are like. Now, fortunately for us, we get to learn from what's going on in Corinth. And this morning, we are going to look at two different concrete examples of how the way Jesus wants us to treat people conflicts with the way the world treats other people. And and these two examples are great because they give us two kind of random things that are handled in two kind of different ways. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the first way uh, we see this playing out, this, this behavior, this, this Corinthian ethic that is being carried out in their lives that needs to be changed is over, it's over this matter of lawsuits. They are suing one another, members of the church. So let's pick it up in verses, uh, we're going to do verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? Therefore, If you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of 
our God. Okay, now there is a lot in these 11 verses, which we are not going to cover everything that is in these 11 verses. You're welcome. If you have more questions about it, you can come ask me about those later. But let's start with the basics. What was happening within the church? Well, church members were having disputes. Is this unusual? No. No, it's not unusual. Church members, family members, friends, everyone has disputes, right? But instead of working it out amongst themselves, they were taking one another to court. Now, what did this look like? Uh, research on the court systems of the Roman Empire has shown that there was a strong systemic bias in favor of higher status litigants. In other words, the rich were treated better than the poor. How different that is today than it was back then. The overwhelming majority of civil cases were brought by the wealthy and powerful against people of lesser status and means. And the judges themselves were members of the privileged classes and would ordinarily give preference to the testimony of their social peers against the testimony of those against the testimony of those of lower rank. And furthermore, those of high standing had the funds to hire professional lawyers to argue their cases and if necessary to bribe the judges. Okay. Is court a very fair scenario? And, and understand what's happening. It is structured to favor those who already have against those who do not have. And in most cases, and again, it's not every case, but in most cases, who is bringing the case in the first place? It is the wealthy, it is the rich, it is the powerful against those who are less than them. So thus, in all likelihood, the members of the Corinthian church who were initiating civil proceedings against their fellow Christians, those people were probably amongst the more privileged and powerful members of the church community, whereas the defendants in such suits were likely to be the more poor members of the church community. And this dynamic of the wealthy within the church taking advantage of the poor within the church, this is not the only place you see it in the letter to Corinth. You see it in a startling number of ways. Those who have want to keep and grow what they have. And in order to keep what they have and to grow what they have, who do they take advantage of? The poor. Those who are under them. And this is becoming a hallmark of their behavior in the church. So much so that how, how can they be in the same place worshiping Jesus together if the wealthy person is trying to take everything from the poor person? So what was the problem with this? Well, they were acting, there's multiple problems that, that Paul is frustrated with. Number one, they were acting as if they did not have the tools to work these things out on their own. Like, and, and you can almost hear Paul asking the question, did you even try? Did you even try? Did you even talk about this? Did you even see if you could figure it out? Isn't there someone 
within the church that could sit down with the two of you and help you work this out. Are you saying there's no one? And what is he doing? If, if they have a lot of pride and look how good we are, he's using that against them, isn't he? Are you saying you're not smart enough? Are you saying you're not wise enough? Are you saying there is no one that has enough influence in your community to help you work out a disagreement between two people? Is that who you are? There's a lot of talk in this passage about judgment, judging the world, judging angels, uh, all these different sorts of things. But for the sake of our discussion, I don't want us to get too caught up in that because the point of all of that discussion is that they had enough knowledge to sort things out amongst themselves. And the problem is they did not do that. They did not use the knowledge in that way. And instead, they took each other to court to a place where the ethics of Jesus Christ are not known at all, and they are asking people who don't know Jesus to help these two people that follow Jesus to decide who's right. Why would you do that? Is that judge going to help you live like Jesus? No. And furthermore, what are the people that know this is happening? What are they saying about not you or him or her, but about the followers of Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> They're like everybody else, man. Did you hear? Did you hear what he did? He's done that a hundred times. He's done that a hundred times. And he's a Christian now. Great. He's just doing it to other people. It doesn't play out very well, does it? So what did this show about them? What did all of this say? Well, Paul doesn't really, you know, makes his words. He says, you are completely defeated. Whoa! Whoa, whoa, whoa. Surely they just made a mistake, right? Didn't they, can't they just correct this behavior and, like, things will be okay? Can't they set up some sort of court within the church that will help them sue one another? That's, <laughs> what does Paul say? He says, you are completely defeated. They had missed almost entirely what it means to be a community that follows Jesus. And, and what Paul is telling them is this, Jesus has not changed a thing about you. He hasn't changed a thing about you. He has not changed who you are. You are no different than what you were when you took uh, friends, family, whoever to court so that you could benefit off of them. And because this is true, you are making Jesus look bad. You're making Jesus look bad. And this is a point that I think we need to be sensitive to because when we act like everyone else, we show, when we, when we keep one foot firmly planted in our large jar of American mayonnaise and we're reaching this way to follow Jesus, we show that Jesus is really not as life-changing as he is. We say that Jesus didn't change the world 
like he says he did. And, and we show that he does not teach a higher ethic of love. And when we do that, when we in the name of Jesus treat other people like we've treated them before Jesus, we make the name of Jesus cheap. Cheap. Jesus died so that we could what? Have all the mayonnaise we want. Right? Is that, is that what it is? Is, is that how this happens? So what should they have done? Well, I mean, the most simple answer is they should have worked it out amongst themselves. They should have shown that they can practically do things differently than they did before they came to know Jesus. And are they going to do that perfectly? No, uh, of course they're not. It's, there's going to be hits and there's going to be misses. But they have to show that they are more committed to one another because of Jesus than they are to righting some sort of perceived wrong within the church. After all, isn't it true that through Jesus, God did not hold our mistakes against us? Then doesn't it stand to reason that someone who has been forgiven so much will in turn do what? How far should this have gone? I mean, how far do they need to try to take this? After all, a wrong was still done. And shouldn't justice, isn't God a God of justice? So doesn't God want justice done in this situation? Well, what does Paul say? Uh, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather this not get resolved like you want it to than to destroy the body of Christ? Wouldn't it be okay if this thing didn't go the way you think it should? Would the world stop if you don't get justified in the end. And what does Paul say? It would be better for you to just forget about the whole thing and just be wronged than to do what you're doing. This pursuit of making things quote-unquote right. Do we let, this is a tough question here, do we let the actions of others justify our own reactions whether they are godly or not? Do we let the actions of others justify our own reactions whether they are godly or not? Yes, we do. Don't we? I have a right to be angry. I even had someone tell me at some point, God is telling me I don't need to love that person right now. Don't we allow what people do to us to justify how we then treat them? Yes, we do. So couldn't they have stood in the church and brought everything to the church with 
the purpose of I am going to be justified and be right about this. And the whole church, the whole body is going to know that I am justified and right and that this person is wrong. Is that the right thing to do? No. It's not. After all, how did Jesus treat those who harmed him? When we act like everyone else, it simply shows that we don't know Jesus. And it's the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of your redemption that changes you. Because, you know, we were all lost in sin. And the very acceptance of Jesus says that we know we could not save ourselves. We could not work our own way out. And the miracle is that we didn't have to. We didn't have to, that God worked it out for us, that Jesus died for us, that the faults and failings that we all commit every single day would not be held against us, so that we walk away from our meeting with Jesus knowing that we are redeemed, turned into something different than we would have been before. We are no longer lost, we are found. So if we want to show the world who Jesus is, if the church in Corinth wants to show the world who Jesus is, then they must love each other even through disputes. Even if one person is right and one person is wrong, they must love each other through all of these things. Work it out. Save the relationship. Forgive. And when you act that way, Putting aside what you think you deserve, you are acting like Jesus and not like a Corinthian. We have told ourselves a lie when we say that Jesus wants us to have every personal freedom and justice over our enemies. You don't have to look far in the Bible, right? to find the themes of freedom and justice, but is it possible that we have misunderstood what those things mean? that we have applied them in such a personal way to us that whatever justification or freedom we feel like we should have, we will take, no matter who it hurts. Jesus has given us victory over sin and death. We have life with our God together. Did Jesus do that so that we would come out victorious over our neighbor? Does he want us to defeat those who oppose us in his name? Does he want us to get what we think we deserve? Is this what we think Jesus is about? So here's the big idea here. Jesus changes your personal ethic. He changes what you think you deserve from others. He changes how you pursue justice. He even changes how you decide what to pursue because you are living in a different world with Jesus than you were before. And therefore, all those things that you were holding on to, they fall away in the face of Jesus. Amen? Man, that is so easy to do. Like, I can give you like a three-step program to make that happen. It's, it's tough, isn't it? Okay. 
Do you want to keep going? Or is that enough to chew on for this morning? This is a choose-your-own-adventure sort of morning. Here's what I want to do. If you would, uh, open your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In, in, in chapter 8, we have a very different discussion. Um, some of the same things are happening, but it's a completely different context. And this situation is a little bit more gray than the other one is. Because, but, but, but what's interesting about this one is that people have, are given the opportunity to choose how they treat other people and to actively put that person in front of them over an issue that doesn't really mean anything. Don't we say that again? <laughs> they are given the opportunity to choose how to treat one another and even to, to, to make concessions to people who, who think differently or don't understand what they know over issues, an issue that ultimately doesn't matter. Which I I don't have to get too far into this, right, to say how often do we hang on to an issue thinking it really, really matters? And if if you disagree with me, Michelle, (laughs) because you know how fiery and ornery Michelle is, If you disagree with me on this, I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong. And in proving to you that you're wrong, I'm going to show everyone else how silly you are for believing this thing. After all, I'm right. Well, what happens when you actually are right? What happens when you actually do know something? What do you do then? What do I do with Michelle in that case? Is the most important thing that I prove I'm right? But I am right. You see that? You see how it works with us? But I am right. I'm right about this. So here's what I would like for you to do. I would like for you this week, and I don't ever give you homework, but I'm giving you homework this week. I would like for you this week to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And I want you to ask yourself some of the same questions we talked about in the previous case. What was happening? What was the problem? I can send all this out to you on an email uh, either today or tomorrow. So what was happening? What was the problem? What did the show about them? And what should they do? It's an interesting case for us to look at. But this morning, I want us to finish um, with where we've been and with what we've already talked about this morning before dragging another, you know, good example into this. And here's the thing that I want you to know. The world that we live in has an idea of what Christians look like. They have an idea of what we do and how we act. They have an idea of how we treat other people. And we may want to disagree 
with those ideas. But the fact of the matter is they hear every day in multiple forms of media from multiple voices messages that reinforce all these things they think about us. And do you know what they're not thinking? That's a safe place for me to go. They're not thinking that. They're not thinking this is the one place on earth that I can walk into and people are going to treat me better than everyone else in my life. They're not thinking that. And the reason they're not thinking that is because they haven't experienced that with a Christian. They haven't. And they hear Christians saying, Jesus loves all of us, and Jesus forgives us, and Jesus gives us new life, and then they see us under the name of Jesus living the same life everyone else lives, and living by the same standards that everyone else lives by and doing the same things that everyone else does. And in the name of Jesus, we declare the great love of God and withhold it. Withhold it. We who are so rich, withhold it from those who need it desperately. What do we do about this? The way that we show we're following Jesus is found in the way that we treat other people. The way that we show we know that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. The evidence is in the way we treat other people. It's in the way we talk to them. It's in the way we love them. It's in the way we treat them. It's in the way we just are around them that they feel like this is a safe place for me to be. So if we, we few but mighty, want to change the world that we live in, if we want to show that we love Jesus, then let's put our pursuit of what we think we deserve, what we think God deserves, what we, how we think other people should treat us. Let's try for a moment to put all of those things aside. All those things that are so important to us here. And recognize that we call ourselves Christians, followers of someone who literally gave everything. And he gave that everything for people who hated him, for people who treated him horribly, for people who talked about him behind his back, for people who talked about him to his face, for people who treated him as horribly as they could in order to maintain 
their hold on the life that they had. And Jesus died for all of them. Church, he died for all of them. Not just some of them. Not just the ones who treated him okay. He died for all of them. That they might in him know the love of God which had been withheld from them also. It's a big ask to love like Jesus does. It's a big ask. But it doesn't start necessarily with big things. It can start with small things. It can start with changing our behaviors, the way we talk, the way we portray who Jesus is and who we are because of him. And I am convinced that even we few but mighty can change the world that we live in. Because we know the love of a God. We know the love of a God that changes the world. That says who you are, what you've done, what you've been about, that is not held against you anymore. That I love you. And that Jesus died to be with us. That we might be with God forever. That's powerful, my friends. That truth is what changes people's lives. So our job and our mission is to do what? To go out and to simply love beyond our ability. I'm not going to tell you to love as best as you can. feels to me like a cop-out this morning. Love beyond your ability. Do stupid things to love other people and see what happens.